Welcome to FieldLink. I'm your host, Bill Smith. Every other week, we sit down with thought leaders from the agriculture industry that are committed to feeding, clothing, and fueling this country. We will talk to agronomists, market analysts, researchers, and growers about the latest products and technology. Joining us on this episode, we will visit with two Helena area managers from the Wheat Belt to get a good handle on how the 22 crop is looking. Plus, we'll catch up with Jody Lawrence for a commodity market update. And finally, we'll sit down with Jeff Gearhart, a range and pasture expert from Texas. Jeff will share how agri-intelligence is impacting how ranchers in the Southwest United States are utilizing this technology to meet the demands for the beef industry. One of the most recognized crops in the world is wheat. It actually ranks number three in the United States. With the global demand, drought issues in much of Europe, and not to mention the ongoing conflicts in the Ukraine and Russia, wheat will continue to be in demand for 22. In this episode of Feelink, we're going to visit with two Helena area managers from wheat country. Joining us today is Jake Adler, area manager for Helena, who is responsible for sales activities in Colorado, Western Kansas, and Nebraska. And another Jake, Jake Godfrey, joins us from Big Sky Country in Montana, where he manages Montana, Eastern North, and South Dakotas. Combined, these two gentlemen manage a significant portion of the wheat uh, crop across the United States for Helena. Guys, welcome to FieldLink. Thank you. All right. Uh, we're going to jump jump right into it here real quick. Jake Adler. Uh, Jake joins us uh, from Colorado. Jake, uh, before we dive into talking a little bit about wheat and digging into that a little bit more, why don't you share a little bit about your background and how, how you made it to the area manager uh, position at Helena? Sure. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me on today. So I live in a, a small town called Holyoke, Colorado, which is extreme uh, northeast Colorado. I've lived there since about 2008. And uh, prior to that, I grew up just 40 miles east of there in southwest Nebraska. So spent uh, the majority of my career and lifetime in that area. Um, I've been with Helena for uh, be five years in December. Uh, we came over as an acquisition. Uh, we were a smaller independent retailer there in northeast Colorado. And uh, we were a Helena customer for a lot of years. And so when our owner decided uh, to sell the business, it was a very natural fit to to sell to a company like Helena. They've just done a really good job at, at taking care of our customers and uh, taking care of our employees. So it was a natural fit. Uh, so I started with Helena as a branch manager and, and worked in that role for two years and then got the, the, the opportunity to become area manager and work over a broader area, which I really enjoy. Uh, just more diverse cropping practices, got to work with more great Helena people and growers. Uh, so real thankful to, to be working in this role today. Well, we're excited to have you join us here today, Jake Adler, and also joining us, for, as I mentioned, from Montana, Jake Godfrey, our other Jake, uh, who's covering uh, a big portion of wheat country up in Montana, as well as eastern North Dakota and eastern, or excuse me, western North Dakota and western South Dakota. Jake, welcome to Fieldlink. Thank you, Bill. You know, tell us a little bit about your journey. How did you end up to become the area manager for, for that geography uh, uh, up in the northern part of the country? So I'm a, I've been with Helena for just over 20 years now, and I started as a sales rep and did that for a couple of years and then managed a wholesale branch in western North Dakota and eastern Montana. I had three locations, Sydney, Montana, Dickinson, North Dakota, and Rugby, North Dakota, and uh, about 10 or 11 years ago, they added, they asked me if I would take on a bigger role and just take, we, we started to acquire some more retail business and and we needed to add an area manager. And so I just stepped into that role at that point. Awesome. Well, great. Great to have you joining us here today, Jake. And really, guys, when I step back and look at, you know, the overall acres that you cover, you guys are responsible for a big portion of the wheat country. Uh, you know, that's really responsible for producing a whole lot of, a lot of wheat for, uh, for our nation and really for around the world. 
Jake, uh, Jake Adler, you know, covering uh, the, the Kansas as well as the western Nebraska and Colorado, how's, just let's size it up, how's the crop looking right now uh, in your geography? Yeah, Bill, so the, the majority of the, the wheat that's grown in our area is dry land. We, we do have some that's irrigated under center pivot irrigation, but, you know, 80 or 90 percent of the acres that we service are all dry land. And, you know, if anybody's been following the national weather patterns here over this past growing season for winter wheat, uh, we started out really, really, really dry in July and barely got enough moisture to get uh, the wheat crop up this fall um, and then had, a, had an open winter with not a lot of precipitation. Um, and so our, our wheat crop looks pretty tough. You know, the last two years we've had, you know, what I wouldn't consider record yields, but really good yields of, you know, 60 to 80 bushel dry land, hard red winter wheat. And, and you know, this year, I think 60 bushel is going to be the top end and we're going to see a lot of 20 and 30 bushel wheat. And and that changes over my geography. You know, probably the southernmost area that I cover would be Garden City and South. Uh, that's probably the toughest. A lot of that wheat has been, you know, released to insurance and, and planted to other crops. Uh, you move up north to Scott City, Leota. Uh, things look decent there. Goodland Weskin. We've got a, you know, kind of a, a halfway good crop there. And then really when you get into Colorado and, and up into southeast Wyoming, that's probably where we're going to see our best wheat this year, but definitely off of where we've been the last two years. So a little further north you get in your geography, quite honestly, the better it gets. Yeah, we just had a little bit just, you know, and, and it comes down to two or three moisture events more that we had this year in that geography. So not not a lot, you know, uh, we're praying for rain for our summer crops. Uh, no doubt is it's still still very dry today, but uh, it's thank God that we've got some good prices this year to help these guys out and generate some revenue. So even though it may be a 20 or 30 bushel crop, it's still been really important to take care of that because uh, there's still some opportunity there. Yeah, definitely a lot of opportunity. You know, just, uh, boy, wheat having a huge rally yesterday, uh, breaking some records there. So definitely uh, going in the right direction for some of these lower yields. Uh, Jake Godfrey up in Montana and the Dakotas, uh, how, how are things looking in your geography? So it's we got a, kind of a tale of a couple cities in that deal. So the Dakotas are went into the spring horribly dry and have caught a lot of moisture. So, I mean, there's some, we're still just getting all the spring crop in. The And the northern triangle of Montana is horribly dry still. Like, we're, our winter wheat crop will, some of it be uh, zeroed out from an insurance perspective. It just isn't going to amount to anything. But we're starting to catch some rains now. So, the spring crop has a has a chance but everybody's taking a little better care of the crop just due to the high price of wheat right now and so even even if they're not expecting a bumper yield they're going to maximize as much as they can yeah, still, still some opportunity up in that northern country with spring wheat going in the ground and taking advantage of some of these high prices that Jake talked a little bit about. Um, Jake, what are some practices that you saw, uh, Jake Gadler rather, what are some of the practices that you saw some of your growers implementing this year to really try to maximize their yield as best as possible, understanding, you know, the constraints with moisture, but uh, to really maximize their yields? What are some things that you guys implemented across your market? Well, in our area over the past few years, you know, we've moved a lot of our spring applications into a two-pass system. So rather than going out and just doing a straight weed and feed in the spring, we split up that fertilizer and that, that herbicide application. So we'll go out in February or March um, and run some UAN32 or some 28005, and then we'll add typically uh, some Coron and some Megafold to that application, which will help speed up green up, which is a, a big thing for quality in our area. The faster we can get the crop to green up, uh, the more time that it has before it starts to senesce when it gets really hot. And we typically tend to add some protein and, and some uh, test weight to our, to our wheat when we do that. So a lot of two-pass application there. Uh, on the second pass, when we go out and we have our uh, herbicide application, we do a little bit lower rate of nitrogen, but we still have corn in the tank there. Uh, sometimes we do have a fungicide in there, which would be like a varus or, or full scale, something like that, uh, which will help mitigate stress for that e early season time and hopefully get us to, you know, where we've got a decent crop there at Flagleaf. 
Okay, Jake Godfrey, uh, tell us a little bit about some of the things that uh, I guess your team is implementing to help their producers produce a more profitable wheat crop for the 22 season. So in the last couple of years, we've really made a hard push on our agri-intelligence platform. We've invested in people and equipment to 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 get this done. We've EC'd a lot of acres in the in all throughout the Dakotas and Montana, Wyoming. Um, that's I mean at just variable rate and putting the fertilizer where it needs to be. I think is is one of the main deals that we're really focused on to try to get try to help our guys to do the best job they can do in raising a crop. Yeah, I think that's a, a really important piece. You know, I think uh, I think you know the general trends historically have been oh, you know that precision, uh, that big data, that uh, that agro intelligence space. That's really great for those corn guys. But you know, as wheat producers, maybe not focused on that. But it sounds like uh, you're putting a stronger focus in that area. It could have some higher payoffs for some of those growers. Absolutely, and I, I think it's probably. I don't, not to take anything away from the corn and bean market, but it's probably more justifiable in these big wheat fields. There's more, it's poorer ground, so it varies more. So it's just, a, it, it, it fits that deal. It's a little hard sell at first, but once they get going on it, it's a, it, they prove it to themselves almost every time. Yeah, the visual, the visual perspective, but also running through the combine at, at the end of the year, really taking a lot of that variability out can be big. Jake, Jake Adler, are you seeing an uptick uh, in in that uh, space for your geography for wheat growers? Yeah, agri intelligence in the West is definitely becoming a a big part of what we do in all crops, and uh, where we're using it in winter wheat production is, you know, it it's something. You know, we're not doing anything as far as variable rate seeding at this point, but like Jake Godfrey said, I mean, whether it comes to using it for those variable rate fertilizer applications or or maybe more so, you know, between taking extractor samples early in the spring and then looking at, um, you know, our grid sample, soil sample data in the fall. It helps you build a report card and, and agri-intelligence has really helped us identify what some of those hidden hungers are on a field-by-field mm-hmm. basis. You know, it's really easy for a sales rep or a grower to get wrapped up in just NPK and, and what am I doing there? Um, and they're just there comes to be so many other aspects that have a big impact on yield and quality, especially in a crop that is under a lot of stress throughout season in a dry land market in our area. Sometimes an application of copper or some other micronutrient can can make a really big difference. And, you know, without agri-intelligence, we're, we're just not getting the data to make those decisions. So it's made us smarter, better and, and increase the returns for our growers and help manage that risk. You, you know, Jake, you said said something that caught my ear, you know, the hidden hunger. And I think that's very true for, well, really for all crops, but especially wheat where, uh, you know, historically we've just kind of treated it as, uh, you know, hey, let's get it out there, see what happens in dry land, that is. Um, but boy, what a, what a small, you know, if we can identify that hunger, that nutritional need in season and make that adaption, you know, with, with, with a product that, you know, can uh, turn that thing around boy, we can really impact some yields. Yeah, and it, it isn't always just a micronutrient that you, you find out. You know, typically in the fall, we're out and we're, we're applying, a you know, an NPK-S zinc mix. And a lot of ours, ours goes on through the, you know, the dry air seeders in the fall. Mm-hmm. And, and guys typically, they have a rate determined that they want to use for an entire field or they have a rate determined for a zone. But you know what, depending on how much, snowfall and rainfall we get over the winter and and the way the crop looks and the kind of yield goal you have going into spring when we go back out and take those extractor samples a lot of fields in my areas we find out that we're still low on phosphorus even though we've made that fall application and you know we've got some hpg products that we can come back in there whether it be at fungicide timing with the plane or you know at, at, at nitrogen timing in the spring where we can put some additional phosphorus on that crop because it's just so important uh, to building yield and quality in hard red winter wheat in our area. So it, it's not always a micronutrient. A lot of times it's a mm-hmm. flexibility to do something later with the nutrient you've already applied and, and maybe you just didn't get enough on for, for the kind of conditions you have that season. Yeah, that's a really great point. And uh, Jake Godfrey, I know your your team up there has really implemented some uh, high ground pieces with agri-intelligence to, to better identify what's in the soil. And I know I think you had uh, some pretty success with a new newer product uh, called Research in your market. 
Absolutely. It's a, I mean, a lot of the branches that are in this market are heavily weighted towards dry fertilizer. And that's their, I mean, that's, I mean, it's transitioning to a little bit more liquid, but I mean, there's not a lot of value to add sometimes when you're just a dry fertilizer market and you got, you're competing with 30,000 ton sheds in your, in your area. I mean, urea is urea and maps map, dap dap, potash is potash. But when you can add, add a dry component that's unique, user-friendly and adds yield, adds quality, like research, I mean, it's a, we got customers that are probably weren't traditional customers, but are coming to us just to, just to get their research and then turn it into other business as well. Yeah. Uh, that, that's, that's really interesting. You know, uh, we're continuing to see, uh, growers up in that geography really adopted, uh, research and really quite growers across the U S in that area to help uh, maximize the efficiency uh, for their fertilizer investment. Um, guys, as we kind of get, you know, going here, your combines are going to be rolling. Jake, there sounds like they're getting really, really close down in Kansas, uh, to, to, to cranking up. Um, you know, what are some tips that you can, uh, you know, I guess set the stage for wrapping this season up in your market, but really setting the stage for next season for that winter wheat market in Kansas and Colorado and Western Nebraska? Yeah, I mean, we'll probably start harvest, you know, at, at the end of June here in, in the southern part of my area. And then the rest of the area will be rolling uh, usually between the 4th of July and, and the 10th of July. And and this year we're going to be wrapped up earlier than usual. So there's not a lot left that we can do for the crop this year. But, you know, a lot of it is is setting the stage for next year. And I do believe that wheat acres in my area will be up considerably this year. Uh, just because the amount of you know acres that were released for insurance or or that were just fallowed because it was dry and and I think with the price where it's at today you're going to see folks if we get some fall moisture they're they're going to want to plant wheat again this season because it is a very you know hardy and and stress resistant crop for our area so it really comes down to getting out there taking some good you know soil tests this fall looking back at the extractor tissue samples that we took this spring build that rec- report card. Um, and start looking at, okay, what's what's the best possible program we can put on the acre this fall to give that crop the most yield potential there for 2023. And so, you know, Jake Godfrey talked about a product research. And so we use that in a lot in a lot of our on a lot of our acres as well with that fall fertilizer application. And I, I think folks started to take a look at this year, you know, what are some of the ways we can use Helena technologies to stretch that cop commodity fertilizer we're putting on our acres? today because they were so expensive. Um, and so I think that that trend is, is going to continue to be very important next year. And so just utilizing those options to whether it be reduce volatility or increase fertilizer efficiency. Um, and, and we've just got a lot of different things we can do there depending on the acre. But we, we really need growers to sit down with our with our sales reps and, and make good decisions there to set them up for a good 2023 season. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And every farm's a little bit different. Every operation's different. But having that connection back to your sales rep to help utilize these tools that are in place uh, to, to, to help them produce a more profitable wheat crop is always vital. Jake Godfrey, things are really kicking in uh, uh, up north. The story's a little different. Um, you still have a lot of opportunity ahead of you in your market. We sure do. And we'll start. Our, our herbicide season's just happening. So we're just starting to get a bunch of that done. And then, like I mentioned earlier, we we left plenty of room for some added nitrogen, so we'll we'll start putting our coron on and, and uh, just or some of it'll they'll stream on thirty two, but a lot of it'll be coron with the herbicide or coron all by itself with the airplane or with ground rig. What we and just some micros for the hidden hunger that Jake Adler was talking about. We'll work off of our extractor samples and. Some just shotgun approaches. Some guys will just go out with, they're just like ENC and they'll just, regardless of their sample, they'll go out with an application of ENC with their core on. So we have a lot of opportunity left. We're just wrapping up seeding. The winter wheat's pretty sketchy in, in, in the big winter wheat country of the Triangle, but there's in the southern part of Montana, there's a great looking winter wheat crop and it's just getting, it's just flag leafing now. So time for fungicides and coron on that as well. 
Wow. Well, definitely a lot of opportunities out there for regrowers this year uh, to take advantage of, even on the market side. Uh, boy, uh, you know, the market looks pretty solid right now. There's certainly a global shortage in wheat across the world right now. Things are tied up in, in uh, Ukraine. Uh, we continue to hear stories coming out of that geography. The long story short, the, the supply demand is huge for wheat growers this year. A lot of opportunities uh, as we wrap this season up and really set the stage for the 23 crop uh, are, are certainly ahead of us. Guys, I definitely want to take uh, this opportunity to thank both of you, Jake and Jake, Jake Adler uh, from Colorado and Jake Godfrey from Montana. Guys, thank you for joining us on FieldLink. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Bill. And joining me from Nashville, Tennessee, is Jody Lawrence with Strategic Advisors. Uh, Jody, lots of stuff going on in the markets today right now. Um, boy, our, our episode here is focused on wheat. What's going on in the wheat market as growers across the Midwest uh, start to crank up combines and do some harvesting, especially in that Kansas market? Well, the biggest thing has obviously been the three-month uh, issue with Ukraine and Russia, and will there be wheat exports? Will there not? Is it all going to be by rail? Is Turkey going to figure out a way to uh, get both sides together, which seems highly unlikely because Ukraine wasn't even inviting invited to the most recent meeting. So I think it's kind of hard to get an agreement between two people when one of them isn't there and is unwilling to make any agreement with somebody that's destroying their country. So you start out with what may or may not be grown and come out of Ukraine this year. I think we're starting to see, and certainly price action in the wheat market has indicated that you are starting to see some leaks out of Russia and whether uh, it, in a couple different things, both their wheat exports and also their energy exports that China, India, uh, Japan, neighboring countries who may or may, you know, they're either allies or frenemies are being forced into a position uh, because of all the mess across the world post COVID on logistics that they are, that Russia is actually getting much more supply than what uh, the world would think because of all the economic sanctions around the invasion. So uh, it's uh, challenging, to say the least, to see, uh, you know, to try to pick a, uh, uh, you know, a direction for wheat. The wheat seasonal harvest pressure is in the market right now when we're bumping around down at, at kind of the lower level of where we've been for the past, you know, uh, gosh, uh, this is about the lowest level down here at 1050 against the July futures since, oh, I'm looking at a chart here, uh, since the March acreage report, March 31st. So okay. we're, we're bumping uh, down here and wheat could very easily go a dollar in either direction because if Russia came out uh, today and said they are working towards a ceasefire, or uh, then that would certainly make the world think that the Ukraine wheat of a normal production year, you know, 60 million metric tons, which is roughly 2.4 billion bushels, whatever percentage of that would be coming back into the market. So a lot of uncertainty, real slippery slope, but Russia certainly doesn't appear to have any interest in uh, pulling back on their offensive. And that just creates you know, more uncertainty and just a really, really fragile and nervous wheat market. Ukraine and Russia certainly impacting uh, a lot of these, uh, you know, supply challenges right now um, and disrupting the market. There's a lot of other factors happening, too. You know, we take a look at some of the weather patterns throughout uh, the Midwest. Our, uh, a couple of our guests talked a lot about that uh, in, in southern Kansas, Oklahoma, the Texas, that market. 
uh, having some limitations on some supplies and uh, you know, even even Europe, uh, the rest of uh, Western Europe, having some challenges with weather right now. The heat's really cranking up over there, and I'm hearing some reports. Uh, are you picking some of that up, Jody? Absolutely, because La Nina is settling in for kind of an unprecedented back end. It's usually a 12 to 18 month scenario when it does develop into the to a strong one like we've had, and we're coming on. Uh, gosh, depending on which reading you look at, either a year or potentially, uh, you know, a year and a half to potentially two and a half years. And you've got, uh, and Mother Nature is winning because you are getting record heat across the uh, the Western U.S., the Southern Plains, uh, moving into the Midwest over the next 10 days. Europe is in a drought and record heat. India has had their challenges on their production this year. Australia is really the only crop, and theirs was so bad last year that it's it's kind of an apples and oranges, but they are uh, have sure. bounced back considerably. So you do have one that uh, which is which is good for the rest of the world because I think in the U.S. you think oh well we're just talking about bread, but wheat is the staple for a majority of the. Uh, underdeveloped world, North Africa, uh, just so many places that a world wheat shortage would be catastrophic. And uh, when you look at the U.S. wheat conditions as harvest gets rolling along, uh, you know, 31% in yesterday's, that's historically low. Talked to two, uh, two guys, two friends of mine out in western Kansas, uh, 110 heat index with 40 mile an hour wind. Uh, you know, I don't know who's harvesting or what or, or what that's helping, but it certainly can't be helping anybody's wheat. And just a just a combination of uh, La Nina really getting a grip on uh, on growing conditions across the country and across the world. And if you, you just have to have a real high level of concern, but when we talk about weather, you always look at Fourth of July. Uh, that always yep. seems to be a big inflection point, and we've got some brutal heat and dryness, you know, with some spotty, uh, some small chances, but spotty pop up uh, in the Corn Belt. But if we, one way or the other, especially with the Fourth of July being another three-day weekend on top of this weekend, you get a lot of market uncertainty. You've got the opportunity over the course of 72 hours to have some major, uh, both bullish or bearish weather forecast changes uh, for the U.S. Corn Belt that, that go into when you start early pollination after the fourth. So the next three weeks will really be incredibly volatile. And if you remember what happened last year, uh, leading into the fourth, the weather looked bad, Forecast changed a little, then we had an absolute avalanche of prices uh, following the 4th of July break. So uh, expect volatility on all of it. And when you add wheat into the situation about uh, what's going on in Ukraine, if there's a positive development, don't be surprised, as painful as it may be, you could see wheat move a dollar in either direction. And if you are following your hedge program and moving along and you and you sell some here, you're either going to look like a genius or you're going to kick yourself for being a dollar yeah. short. But that's just yeah. the nature of risk management that at some point you have to go, gosh, I can sell 1050 wheat and I don't, there, <laughs> there've been a lot of times when I started in the business, sure. if wheat got to $5, it was a sell, sell, sell signal. So uh, right. just a lot of things going on that, uh, when you talk wheat in particular, and wheat, if we have a U.S. problem on corn, wheat will certainly be the beneficiary of that. And conversely, if the weather turns good and or turns less threatening in the U.S., corn will drag down wheat. So just a lot of insane volatility. A lot of variability going on right now, certainly in that wheat market, especially, and a lot of things out of everyone's control when we talk about geopolitics and, of course, Mother Nature, uh, a lot of factors impacting that. Uh, speaking of volatility, uh, Jody, uh, boy, 
there's probably nothing more volatile right now than the than the energy market. Tell us about the fuel and the, and, and and crude oil right now. Boy, we got some records happening there. Watching the crude oil trade this morning, and it's up another two dollars and sixty cents a barrel. Uh, you got diesel up seventeen cents. Both of them making new contract highs, and it's it seems counterintuitive when you talk about what has happened lately with all the recession talk and Mm -hmm. the Federal Reserve potentially coming in tomorrow and raising uh, uh, prime by three quarters of a point, which would be almost would be unprecedented in most everybody's uh, life that's listening to this podcast. And uh, that crude oil would still be driving higher. And that tells you Uh, just the amount of energy that's being used around the world, despite the fact that the world equity markets are now in a bear market position, having dropped 2,000 points since their highs earlier this year. But uh, unfortunately, energy prices keep surging. And when you look at the July diesel contract, uh, which is the spot contract may not. It, obviously, there's some taxes and some other additions on here when you talk to your supplier. But it, at four dollars and forty four cents a gallon, just as a base price for diesel, uh, that certainly is cutting into both uh, both families trying to get to work and get kids to summer right. camp and what they're doing this year. Plus you look at all the field needs that uh, the American farmer and the world farmer is going to need over the course of the next six months. So that to me is the biggest concern, but it's always crude oil and energy have always added support for the rest of the raw material. So even with some dips like we're getting, if you see crude and diesel making new contract highs and making new, uh, gosh, 14-year highs, I guess, that uh, our stuff is going to be well-supported because ethanol is the only thing you can blend in gas to bring the cost down. And the biodiesel push, you've got so many plants coming online, coming up, that the uh, the surge in uh, in uh, soil use for biodiesel is going to be enormous and going to be very, very hard if the U.S. continues in this weather pattern to try to keep all those uh, demand uh, balls in the air in this juggling act that we're having to do right now. Well, there certainly is a huge demand for, for energy. And, uh, you know, Jody, the average consumer, they, they cannot just walk up to the refrigerator, open the door and look inside of it. And everything that you see uh, and touch and feel inside the refrigerator has been moved or, or developed or, or, or brought to the marketplace by diesel. Uh, so uh, managing this diesel, uh, you know, uh, this diesel volume, this this diesel uh, price is going to be absolutely critical for uh, for, for the, uh, the economy. Yeah, you you look at it. We got our uh, the, our our garbage pickup service. They added on a twenty five dollar surcharge uh, per month, which I completely uh, embrace because I understand it. But you just look mm-hmm. at the uh, the additional uh, pain that goes through every one of them because it it costs money to get to get everything where it needs to go for sure. Well, and in some recent reports, you know, I talked, my daughter's actually in supply chain logistics and she was indicating to me that, you know, a lot of independent truckers are, are really faced with some very difficult decisions, you know, when they're starting to fill their tanks up. Uh, can they, can they really afford to run that truck down the road with today's diesel prices? And, and, you know, you start to remove 15, 20% of you know, the semis that are going down, you know, the interstate, uh, boy, that's going to put an impact on, you know, the entire supply chain. Yeah, you have diesel prices uh, $3 higher than they were. Granted, COVID gives you kind of a uh, inaccurate a bubble. Yeah. Uh, measuring stick in this. But if you just go back to average of thinking a gallon of gas and a gallon of diesel, and for a long, long time, remember when diesel was 25, 30 cents cheaper than unleaded gas. And that was the right. whole driving point of diesel that they could uh, use less refinery capacity and less cost to produce it. But not the case now. And uh, yeah, when you start doubling the cost of uh, of what it takes to get everything everywhere and everything done, 
there's going there's a pinch and uh, sympathetic with everybody because I got a suburban and we had to do some summer running around and and uh, I just did I didn't even look I just waited till it was filled up didn't even look how much I spent and just <laughs> got in and drove away so uh, yeah t- uh, challenging times for everybody to say the least. So Jody, you know, with what we know today, I mean, uh, what what are what's some I guess base advice for growers as they're you know kind of turning the wheels here, uh, or starting to slow down rather. Uh, things are in the in the ground. Um, you know, we're approaching that mid June July timeframe. Harvest is not that far off. W- what do they need to be thinking about from from a marketing standpoint? Well, from uh, from wheat right now, it's just going to be get comfortable with how much you've sold because as harvest pressure mounts and the wheels turn over uh, the, all the spring wheat, you just have to embrace the fact there's going to be an enormous amount of volatility in the market and that you just have to be comfortable in whatever decision you make at you know, noon on Tuesday the 14th you're comfortable with that, with all the information at hand, knowing full well that 15 minutes later, you may look like a genius or uh, be a little bit uh, chagrined about it. But And then uh, corn and beans, I think you just have to watch the weather because, gosh, as much as I hate to say this, uh, f- because I, what we all know is that $7 corn and $17 beans are not healthy for the entire farm uh, right. economy, uh, all the way down to, you know, ranchers and, uh, and anybody yep. in the livestock business that there just isn't a lot of downside here, because if we have a weather problem and national corn yield, you know, prevent plant goes up another million acres of corn that takes 175 million out of production. Then all of a sudden you lose two or three bushels an acre on the 88 million. Next thing you know, we've lost, you know, 400 to 500 million acres. And the craziest thing is that yield at 173, 174 would still be a top 10 national all-time yield. And if it goes any lower than that, you could really put in a position where you, we could be talking about uh, $8.50 to $9 December corn. And the only thing, what I'm telling every one of my customers, and I, we're certainly not uh, trying to push anybody uh, to be uncomfortable in the in trading options or futures, but there are vehicles that you can make cash sales now. You can be comfortable because the crops in the ground and growing that you can make a great sale right here. But what you have to remember is that if corn does run to nine dollars, you can uh, what that nine dollar corn is going to affect the price most of is next year's input costs. Uh, your landlord right. raising rent, what you're paying at auction for ground, what uh, you know, what the world, what the potashes and CFs of the world charge for all your uh, fertilizer products. So you have to be really, really careful that you just don't look at it and go, "Okay, I'm making money this year," because if we have a 173 yield. We very easily could be talking about uh, you know, uh, real challenges for the entire industry, the biggest we've seen in decades, if not maybe a lifetime. So you have to be cognizant of that and just pay attention that there uh, there is upside, but you want to be responsible about it. So anybody's welcome to call us uh, particular to talk just to talk it through because we're in the education business on these uh, trading accounts, but uh, just know and buckle up for the volatility across all the markets. Yeah, I think that's really important, Jody. You know, uh, you, you referenced twenty two. Hey, we got a ride. We got a ride, and uh, it's going to a lot of volatility. We understand that. Embrace that. Try to get yourself in a good position, but keep your eye on the ball for twenty three. There's going to be a lot of things happening in twenty three, and Try to try now to start putting yourself in the best spot for 23. Jody, what's a good phone number for folks to reach out to you? 615-948-2378 is my cell. And you can always uh, catch me or leave a message there. Uh, summer travel and everything else is, uh, it, you know, I'll be in and out of the office like everybody else sure. trying to take care of things. But uh, the 
email address, uh, and I'll always get back to you. And they come to my phone also if I'm out of the office is J B Lawrence, L A W R E N C E, at Comcast.net. And Brady and I'll certainly get back with you. Uh, as as quickly as we can to answer any questions. Well, thank you, Jody. And uh, uh, as always, we can reach out to your Helena representative to uh, get Jody's daily newsletter uh, to get signed up for that. So reach out to your Helena representative. Jody, thanks for joining us today from Nashville. Um, We look forward to hearing from you next time. Okay, Bill, thank you, everybody. Be safe while you're harvesting that wheat. For many livestock producers, pasture management can often take the back seat, especially for producers that farm and raise livestock. But for many ranchers across the nation, pasture management is key to their success. Good pasture management is vital for the overall health of the pasture and their bottom line. Today joining us on FieldLink is Jeff Gearhart. Jeff is a range and pasture specialist from Texas. Jeff, welcome to FieldLink. Good to talk to you. Jeff, uh, you know, uh, t- range and pasture, uh, that's your wheelhouse. Uh, you specialize in, uh, you know, helping producers uh, across, you know, a good portion of Texas and New Mexico, Oklahoma, in that area, better manage their pasture and, uh, and rangeland. Uh, before we dive into that, but tell us a little bit about you. Where, where's home and how did you get into this area, Jeff? Well, I grew up in Ohio and I'm not from the farm or a ranch. I grew up in the city and uh, I've always had an interest in agriculture because of the, the private school I went to uh, over in eastern Ohio. They raised a herd of uh, Jersey uh, and Holstein cows, and I helped the uh, the local farmer, dairyman, on the weekend do the milking and uh, got involved that way with the, some of the farming operations. And uh, uh, when I got ready to graduate, uh my mom took me over to the OARDC, the research center over there, east eastern uh, Ohio, and I visited with some of the uh, local uh, uh, doctors and uh, researchers over there about opportunities in ag, and uh, they said, you need to go to Ohio State, and so <laughs> that's where I ended up going, and uh, four years later, I got a degree in agronomy and uh, uh, moved west to Nebraska and got a job out there working for a local co-op, learning the ins and outs of the fertilizer and chemical elevator business, the grain handling and all that, and uh, worked my way up to a real retail fieldman and was calling on local farmers up in the, that area, primarily corn, grain sorghum, soybeans. And, uh, of course, had opportunities to interact with the industry uh, people as well that were calling on us and uh, went to work for a company that uh, – hired me, uh, Sibagagi, and was uh, putting the territory up in the sand hills in Nebraska and uh, 2 million acres of corn up there, 16 counties, and uh, <laughs> enjoyed it immensely, living in O'Neill. And uh, anyway, made my way down to Texas uh, as a promotion and uh, worked down here for a number of years with uh, through the mergers with the Novartis and finally became Syngenta. And uh, Helena was one of my largest customers. And they wanted to do a better job uh, reaching the uh, uh, rancher audience that we have down here in Texas and Oklahoma and New Mexico. So uh, they hired me for this position that I'm in currently, and uh, that's what I've been doing the last 15 years and uh, really enjoying it. Great. And, and, and Jeff, you live in uh, the Fort Worth area, is that right? Yes, sir. Yep. have been living here since 97. Uh, okay. Excellent. Primarily uh, West Texas, areas west of Fort Worth. I do a little bit in East Texas, but most of our operations are are further west and uh, out out to the New Mexico line, and, uh, where I, my main area of operation is. Well, definitely ranch country and that geography. Can you uh, tell us you know, what what are three big things that you know farmers and ranchers in that geography you know look to uh, as it relates to better managing their pastures and rangeland? And, and why do they need to focus on that area? Well, if you've got the land, you need to, you know, manage what you've got in front of you to be able to sustain a, a profitable cow herd. And uh, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So the first thing is having a good knowledge of what your actual 
rangeland productivity is in a, a normal year, a wet year, a dry year, and that will be uh, allow you to set appropriate stocking rates so that you don't uh, undermine the resource that you're utilizing, which is a usable forage that we've been blessed with here in Texas and elsewhere, and to set appropriate stocking rates uh, so that you don't uh, hurt yourself going forward in a dry year like what we are right now. You know, I, I think it's really interesting because when we talk about stock rates and, you know, better managing with what really quite honestly God gave us. And uh, when we talk about environmental compliance and some of these things, you know, some of the best environmentalists really or conservationists are farmers and ranchers, uh, especially when it comes to pasture. Uh, what, what are some tools uh, that some of your customers have implemented in terms of better managing uh, their pasture? Well, the knowledge base that's available now versus, you know, even 10 or 15 years ago is so much greater uh, because of the use of the internet and uh, remote sensing and uh, uh, weather reports and and weather forecasting and things of this nature. Uh, One of the things that I like to do on a new property that uh, I've been asked by a landowner to come out and work with them on is I like to know before I go on that call uh, where it's located. And then uh, there's some resources available through the NRCS, the uh, Natural Conservation Resource Center, that the web soil survey that you can pull up. uh, Soil surveys have been done on all the land in Texas. And it gives you uh, an indication of uh, you put the boundaries of the uh, property in question uh, load them in there and it'll it'll give you an indication as to what the forage production will be for that particular uh, ranch and how many animal units you can run uh, efficiently on that property. So that's one of the tools, just knowing where your best soil is and where your uh, where your problem areas are as well. And, you know, that gives you an indication of maybe some things you can do to ameliorate that and, and improve those areas, whether that be brush control or uh, weed control or perhaps fertility if it's a, a, a some type of a grazing crop that they're raising. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because, um, you know, clearly, you know, this area of agri-intelligence and precision agriculture has been a key, a key for a lot of, you know, crop producers over the years. But we often don't hear about a lot of that technology translating over to the pasture and range side as much. But from what I'm hearing is you're implementing a lot of that technology into, you know, some of these better practices for, for ranchers. Yes. It's even, I mean, it's important anytime. I think if you're uh, making a decision as to a fertilizer application, uh, especially on uh, improved uh, grasses, such as Bermuda grass, coastal Bermuda grass, they grow a lot down here for hay or hay grazer or grazing wheat. We have a lot of wheat that is just used exclusively for grazing. Uh, if you're going to make a fertilizer application, more more information is a beneficial thing uh, so that you're not hurting yourself, that you're helping yourself, that you're moving the, uh, the needle in the right direction in terms of uh, overall forage production. That's where the high ground uh, soil uh, testing service that we operate, uh, landowners has really, really helped me uh, develop a better relationship with these uh, customers and giving them a, a deeper insight into what their actual needs are and uh, putting together a plan to accomplish their objectives, which is more usable forage for their cattle. Jeff, have you got any success stories where you've actually worked with maybe some landowners um, and, you know, we're able to share some insight with them as it relates to high ground or other, other technologies. And, and what was their outcome? Well, one of my largest customers last year uh, has a property in uh, Oklahoma that they run a stalker cattle on. He's a large feedlot operator out of Kansas and uh, brings, you know, he's got, oh, I think it's 3000 acres or so of wheat that I've been after him for years to, we've been pulling soil tests, just uh, composite samples out there to give it, give us a, a ballpark idea about what our needs were. And we knew we were low on potash, but we really didn't know what amounts we needed and where we needed it because this is a highly variable uh, uh, place as far as the overall topography of the ranch. There's draws and hills and, you know, sandy areas, there's clay areas. 
high ground identifies all those fields within the fields, allowing us to custom tailor a, a fertilizer recommendation to address the deficient areas and bring them up to you know where we need to be as, in terms of their overall fertility. Uh, the other thing that they did on this place is they've been putting lime out, and uh, lime's very expensive. Uh, you don't need to apply it everywhere. What high ground does is identify those areas that you need it the most and allows you with variable rate technology, application technology, uh, with our spreader trucks to, you know, vary that rate as you're on the fly, as you're going through the field through the GPS. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing and uh, you're, you're putting the right amount out and uh, really providing the landowner some benefits in terms of uh, raising that pH and, and uh, in the areas where it needs it the most. Uh, excellent. And did that grower uh, see some increase in terms of more forage uh, uh, after after going through that experience? Or how does that relate back to, I guess, pounds on the cattle and pounds on the hoof? Well, we know that, that when you've got an acid soil that a lot of your nutrients are not as available. And, you know, some of these pH values were down in the, the, the low fives where we were trying to raise that, adjust that pH to the neutral range, which is six and a half, where most of your uh, phosphorus, which is expensive nutrient to buy right now, uh, we're trying to get it back up to six and a half, where the phosphorus is most available. And uh, we won't know for three years. We go back and resample three years from now those same sure. georeference sites to see if we've moved the peg. And uh, hopefully that's what we're going to see in three years. But uh, the main benefit he received on that, the, the, you running that program this year or this last year, was that uh, he didn't overapply and he didn't underapply. He put the correct amount he needed on every area that was limed. And yeah. You know that's that's huge. Well, and and uh, to your point, when you balance that out and you increase that pH to where it needs to be, everything tends to work better. Uh, you know, even even the herbicides they, they tend to work a little bit better when they're you know in that right pH zone. Yeah, one unique thing about this particular customer, <laughs> he just recently sold out to another one of my customers from another area this, uh, of Texas, and he was explaining to that new. Uh, owner, the, the the map mapping that we did out there and running the high ground, and this act, this other rancher has a large property that he purchased elsewhere in Texas, and he decided he wants to run it on that that whole farm down there as well. So it's really turned into a a, a, a good thing for for Helena, and it's it's a good thing for the customer. You see, in the value of the program. Yeah, and I think uh, that's a really good point. You know, knowledge is power. We hear that a lot. And, you know, when, when growers do make that investment into a, a high po- high ground program, ranchers especially, it truly gives them more insight to what's, you know, inside their ground. But it also increases the value because you have something in addition to, uh, you know, prove the value of, of, of that range passion. Yeah, it really just, it, it gives them a deeper insight into what, their land uh, actually ha- has available and where they need to, uh, uh, to make improvements. And information is, I mean, that's basically what we're in is the information selling business working for Helena and helping those growers make good decisions that Im- improve their bottom line is the ultimate goal because we want them to be successful. If they're successful, Helena is going to be successful. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, the growers got to win, and and in this case, in range of pasture, for most cases, that grower needs to put more, you know, pounds uh, on their livestock. And and if we can help them through high ground, as well as other other uh, technologies, uh, whether it be a Helena product uh, to you know better manage uh, pasture, that sort of thing, uh, weed control, that's uh, certainly something we want to try to do. Uh, Jeff, what are some of the trends you're picking up as far as better managing brush and, uh, you know, other weeds across, uh, you know, rangeland and pastures? Well, that's a large part of what I do is when I get called by a landowner, uh, you know, it's either he's got a pasture he wants to spray for weeds or get put on the schedule for that, or uh, he's wanting to do something about his mesquite problem, which is a large, large problem out here in Texas, or prickly pears, another large one we deal with a lot in my area. 
and or other brush species. It just depends on where you are in the state. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things that I spend a lot of time on is, is okay, you know, you got to have a budget, you know, know what amount you're going to be willing to spend. And then uh, one of the things we're, we're using now to help them, uh, help the grower, or the rancher make better decisions about where to apply those funds as we're doing a remote uh, monitoring through satellites of uh, mesquite density overlaid with the uh, uh, soil test information that we have through the web soil survey showing them their most productive range sites. Usually uh, for mesquite, it's, you're going to find that the, uh, the heaviest densities are in those most productive range sites. So if you apply a practice there, you're going to get a way bigger return on investment uh, on what you can run animal units per year uh, by applying a, a well-timed herbicide application. The other thing that we're doing is uh, this remote sensing allows us to tell them when it's inappropriate to spray because that's just as important. That's probably even more beneficial in knowing when the appropriate time is to spray and when not to spray. So it's really helped me a lot in the last few years because every year is different out here in Texas, it seems like. Last year we were wet, now we're dry. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's 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 really interesting to hear you talk about all of the information technology that's being implemented in into ranching. Uh, I, I mean, I think for a lot of folks that are not involved in 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 the ranching business, don't quite understand how that technology certainly does cross over uh, in in into range and pasture management. Yeah, it does, and you know. Uh the other thing we're hearing more about now uh, is drone usage by by ranchers in using it to monitoring monitoring their uh, security on the ranch, uh, watering, you know, uh, checking watering, uh, saving you having to go out and on a four wheeler or a mule or your pickup and check things out. You can do it remotely uh, through the use of a drone. So that's that's still in its infancy, but uh, I expect to see more of that uh, being utilized in the future as well. Well, technology certainly is evolving uh, in all of agriculture, but uh, definitely has a strong play for you know the folks that are in the livestock business uh, and have you know pretty big area to cover, uh, especially in some rough rough terrain. Uh, there in West Texas and, and other parts of the country, for that matter. Uh, Jeff, what are, what uh, What's the tone right now for a lot of your customers? You know, uh, as we're taking a look at, you know, some of the livestock markets right now, where's their energy? Are, are, are they wanting to invest into their pasture management? Are they holding back? Uh, you know, what's the temperature for many ranchers across the country that you're dealing with? Overall, I'd say that there's still uh, a lot of optimism out there. Uh, there's There's headwinds that we're facing, you know, irregardless of what the year it is it's it could be the weather it could be water availability uh you know uh, drought things like that but uh, these are things that ranchers are used to dealing with it's nothing new right yeah i've been dealing with that for 200 years plus. it's part of the job description so you know with the the, most of the ranchers that I deal with, they know they've got needs and and they budget accordingly. It's part of their planning process that they sit down every year and they do a budget just like uh, most businesses do. And, and they plan for uh, their fertility costs. They, they budget for that. They, they budget for, you know, seeding wheat for, for grazing. They, they uh, brush control. They've got a budget for that. And they allocate the resources as they're available uh, to, to accomplish their objectives and, and keep the ranch in the condition they need it to be in to be able to survive the, the hard times we know that, are, that come and also be, be ahead of the game when, when things turn good. So uh, puts them in a better position if they've got a, a good uh, plan in place that they operate for the plan and, and stick to it year to year. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, uh, and it's exciting when growers and ranchers have a plan and they stick to that plan and that strategy. Uh, it's often easy to get, uh, you know, kind of caught up in the whirlwind of the day and the moment. Uh, but 
especially when you're dealing with pastures, these pastures are going to be around a while. So managing them appropriately is 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 really kind of important. You know, it it it's, it can be a lifetime or a generational change with some of the things, you know, whether it's cross fencing or whatever the strategy may be. Uh, managing your ranch is is a little different than managing, you know some row crops in some situations. Yeah. If you've got a plan, it really frees you up to uh, not worry about those day-to-day things. You know, that, you know, those are going to come, that there's going to be stumbling blocks are going to be placed in your way. But, you know, by having that plan, it, it helps you uh, better weather those unforeseen circumstances, I think. Yeah. Jeff, uh, we, you deal with a lot of different products out there. What are some key things that you've recognized uh, from the Helena products line that uh, are really helping producers out better manage their pasture? Well, the, we'll talk about the weed control options that we've got available to us with the with Helena. Uh, we've got a really good uh, product development group that brings us brands that I think add value and, and offer some real needs that uh, ranchers and growers and uh, people with weed problems that they want to try and address. Uh, one of the main products that uh, I sell in the spring of the year uh, is uh, Latigo Bold. It's a uh, mm-hmm. acid-based uh, 2,4-D and dicamba uh, product that's excellent on a lot of the weeds that we have here in central and west Texas. Uh, uh, one of the unique features of it, it, this acid technology, is it allows us to be uh, use the product in areas where perhaps we've got some sensitive crops that we need to be mindful of our neighbors and we don't want to have any uh, issues there. So it, it does not, it's not as volatile as uh, some of your other 2,4-D and dicamba products and uh, seems to work better in those type of uh, tricky environments and give us really good results on uh, the weeds. Uh, the other products we use, uh, uh, Herbicide-wise, we'll, uh, there's an acid uh, uh, triclopyr product that we manufacture called Tricera. It's uh, triclopyr and uh, uh, used primarily for brush control. And I'm adding it, uh, again, in those areas where I've got cotton that I've got to be concerned about. And I don't want to have any risk of uh, injurious effect on the neighbor's crops. Adding that into the mix to get better performance on our uh, primarily uh, woody brush species such as mesquite. Other products we've got Resurge and uh, Hydrium. We use these in our fertilizer applications. They could, it's our bioscience offerings that are used sure, uh, sure. where we've got uh, real high pH soils, pretty much a lot of parts of Texas, and uh, your phosphorus gets tied up with a high pH. We're adding the Resurge into our uh, dry fertilizer applications to help mitigate some of those issues with the soil to make the uh, phosphorus more available, especially since phosphorus is more expensive. And a lot of guys are wanting to reduce rates to uh, stretch their dollars out. We can add some research to that uh, fertilizer application and really uh, try to provide the uh, uh, landowner some benefits there. Oh, yeah. And then that's a good point. You know, uh, ha- having those kind of products uh, into fertilizer, especially for you know, maybe not all the rangeland, but guys that are having more intense pastures, boy, what a great tool to be added to their fertility program. Yeah, another one that I was just talking to uh, one of my producers up in Oklahoma that, uh, you know, with the high cost of nitrogen, you know, he, he's a grass uh, grower for hay production and for grazing for his cattle. And a lot of guys backed up on me this year, rightfully so, when they saw the price of liquid nitrogen and you know, we're we're not saying that this is going to supplement or, or it's not going to displace proper nit- nitrogen usage, but uh, Coron Metra, I've had some guys run that with uh, either their weed control spray that they're going across the feed field with anyway, uh, putting a gallon or two of that out to try and foliar apply their nitrogen needs to give them, sure. give them a bump when we've got, and it's when we've got some good growing conditions too, when we've had a recent rainfall event. And, uh, I think that that's, that's probably helped somewhat this year as well. Well, and I, you bring up a good point, you know, a product like Quan Metra certainly has the ability to be flexible 
Uh, it's not the sole plan, nitrogen plan for a lot of producers, nor should it probably be, but a great, uh, you know, build on leaving a little room, feeding that crop, in this case, the pasture uh, or, or, you know, hay field when it's needed. And, uh, you know, hitting that nitrogen, you know, we get that good rain, you can add a little in there and hopefully get some, uh, you know, benefits out of there for creating more forage. Right. Jeff, what a... Uh, what, what are some of the, the hot topics uh, in terms of uh, range production that uh, some of your growers are, you know, looking for you for assistance right now as we kind of get into the middle of the season? Right now, I'm waiting for the weather to be right. So I can, <laughs> all these uh, <laughs> mesquite applications that I've got, I'm waiting on uh, one of the things that we do that's part of this uh, program that's offered by one of our suppliers is that... Uh, it is actually monitoring the mesquite for me remotely. Every three days, it's taking a picture of that particular pasture that we've selected to make an application to. And it's telling me, uh, based on the imagery, what the vigor of that particular tree looks like. So uh, the application is basically the decisions being made by the satellite when it's right. And it's looking back in time over, you know, uh, prior seasons to to know when we reach that peak and if we're going to reach it this year. And when that does occur, I've got to go out and physically make a, a, a ground check to see that it, it's time to spray uh, before we pull the trigger on, you know, getting the airplane or helicopter to come in there and make the application. So a lot of my time is spent uh, this time of year just w- working with the landowners to make sure I've got their maps right, um, getting those to the applicator to uh, include in their schedule of work to be done and uh, coordinating with the helicopter operators, you know, uh, getting product where it needs to be. So It's a, it's definitely an exciting business uh, that you're in, uh, Jeff, very unique. Um, and, and I know that our listeners are really taking some good notes here. And it's just, it's interesting to sit back, you know, as, as a guy that grew up in the livestock business up in Nebraska, I'm used to, you know, managing pastures, but boy, you're taking it to a whole different level when you're implementing these satellite images and, and, and implementing that kind of technology. And Jeff, we want to thank you for joining us here on FieldLink today. Well, thank you, Bill. Enjoyed it. All right. I appreciate it. Eat more beef. There we go. <laughs> it's what's for dinner. Hey, folks, thanks for joining us here on this episode of FieldLink. Uh, be sure to uh, subscribe uh, to, to all of our podcasts on your favorite platform, as well as following us on HelenAgra.com. <laughs>